0: Uh, thank you to Sarah for leading us this morning. Obadiah. So, here's the question, what do you know about Obadiah? Okay, what do you know about Obadiah? Now, this is not the Obadiah who's responsible for the book of the Old Testament named after him. That's a different Obadiah. This is the Obadiah who briefly Appeared in 1 Kings 18. So, turn back to the person beside you who you said hello to and tell them what you know about him. Might be a brief conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Right, I knew that was going to be brief. See, I. I'll be honest, I didn't even realize there was an Obadiah in First Kings, okay? And I'm meant to be a pastor. Anyway, I certainly didn't appreciate his story nor his input into God's story and into the big story and into our story. But now that I do know his story, I have decided that he is one of my new unsung heroes of Scripture A few years ago, we as a church did a series called Unsung Heroes, where we looked at some of the minor characters in the Bible, the kind of generally unknown yet influential people. So, for example, during that series, we looked at someone called Jason. I don't know what you know about Jason. He appears in Acts 17, but during that series, we looked at Jason. Well, if we ever repeat that series, we're going to look at Obadiah. And if we ever have a son, I am going to name him Obadiah. (laughs) I'm having so much trouble. No, it's uh, that's never going to happen for so many reasons. (laughs) But let's not go there, right? Okay. So three weeks ago, three weeks ago, we left Elijah, who is a very well-known Bible character, and and incidentally. A fortnight ago, as we reread the Easter story, it kind of struck me again, and I'm sure many of you know this, that whenever Jesus hung on the cross, whenever Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who did the people around the cross think he was crying out to? Elijah. And people wondered whether Elijah would come and rescue Jesus from the cross. Such was the high profile of that particular Old Testament prophet. But three weeks ago, we left him at the end of 1 Kings 17, enjoying the hospitality of a widow in a place called Zarephath. And as we pick up the story again at the beginning of chapter 18, two more years have passed, and still there is no rain. That meant there has been a drought in the land now for over three years, which really would have been completely awful. It's hard. I mean, we read these stories, but we don't sometimes pause to think, what must that have been like? What horror that would have caused to thousands upon thousands of people, 36 months with no rain, no dew on the land. I mean, we have seen some terrible droughts during our time. Many of us remember the dreadful drought in Ethiopia in the early 1980s that then led to a famine that then led to the death of over a million people or more recently, the severe drought in East Africa, 2011, primarily affecting Somalia, where the death toll was estimated to be 260,000 people caused by drought. And then we read stories in God's Word like this, and we discover a drought that lasted for over three years, and we kind of just read on. But what we need to remember is the reason for this particular drought. I mean, this wasn't a natural disaster, although it was an act of God. We read in Scripture that the reason for this drought was because the people had sinned. And so, because of the sin of their king, Ahab, and also the sin of all his people, we read in Scripture that the heavens had been shut up And so there was no rain nor dew for 36 months. And the reason behind it was it was intended as punishment for the people's sin. It was intended to force Israel to sort themselves out, or rather it was intended to bring Israel to a place of repentance. And now after three plus years of horror, seems that rain is imminent again. And why? Because the word of the Lord speaks. That's what it says in the very first verse of chapter 18. The word of the Lord speaks again. It had been absent. It had fallen silent for those years, but now it speaks again. And so can we please stand as we often do For the public reading of God's life-giving, death-saving word. This is 1 Kings 18. Words are on the screen. After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now, the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Open brackets. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. And while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each. And he supplied them with food and water. So Ahab had said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys, maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and the mules alive so we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground and said, Is it really you, my lord, Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master, go tell Ahab, Elijah is here. What have I done wrong? asked Obadiah that you're handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death. As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he'll kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, 50 in each, and I supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here, he will kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Grab a seat. Do you know one of the reasons why so many people apparently haven't heard of this Obadiah when it comes to First Kings being read in this kind of context or preached in this kind of context is that people, most people tend to skip the first 15, 16 verses of 1 Kings 18 because they want to get to Carmel. They want to get to the big showdown. They want to get to the fire. And so they miss the first 15 verses, 16 verses. Well, we're not going to do that. And Obadiah is a hero. But for those of you who know God's Word well, some of you will realize that not everybody thinks Obadiah is a hero. Some Bible commentators actually refer to him in these ways. He is a boss serving, career protecting, life preserving fence straddler. That's how some people think of Obadiah. But I think that's harsh. I think it's rude. I think it's out of order. And I'm going to side and stick with the likes of C.H. Spurgeon. So that's that's a good person to side with, okay? So I'm going to stick with the likes of C.H. Spurgeon, who actually describes Obadiah as an example of early eminent piety. I like that. But before we examine Obadiah's personal character and profile, I want to just pause for a moment and celebrate the word of God. Because as you can see from verse 1 there, it came to Elijah again, as we've said, And it was that that determined the course of events. It was the word of God that altered lives and circumstances at this time and in this place. And you know something? We need to always, always remember that God's word still does that. God's word still speaks. It keeps speaking. It hasn't stopped speaking. God's word endures, as the apostle Peter says, God's word endures forever. It keeps changing people's lives. It keeps impacting circumstances. And so, as a church, let's constantly give thanks to God that his word speaks. Three years ago, it was the word of the Lord that sent Elijah away from Ahab. Three years later, it's the word of the Lord that now tells him to go back to Ahab. For what is going to be a serious confrontation Because, as we read a moment ago, for three years Ahab has launched this massive manhunt for Elijah. But notice, and this is often the case with the Word of God, there's a command and there's a promise. And so the command that comes to Elijah is this go. I want you to go and show yourself to Ahab. That was challenging. But then there was a promise and I will send rain upon the land. And in fact, the Bible is packed with these. I would love to open it up and and get you to think about, think of incidences in the Bible where we come across commands and promises together. So for example, go into all the world, share the gospel, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what is the promise? I will be with you command, promise. What about, what about Philippians 4? Pray about everything. That, that's a challenge, isn't it? But what's the promise and the what of God? The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's the command. Pray about everything. Here's the promise. Or what about the great proverb, in all your ways acknowledge him, That's the command. We've got to acknowledge God in every single thing we do. What is the promise? He will direct our paths. If you want to do the exercise this afternoon, just go through God's word in some way. Google it, whatever. Command, promise. What are those things in God's word that command us to do certain things, but then promise others? Here, there's a command to Elijah. Go, show yourself to Ahab. Here's the promise. I'm going to send rain as a result. The wait is finally over, it would seem, God's going to send rain, or rather, God is going to save lives. He's going to prevent death. That's what God does best. And Elijah then does what he does best. He obeys. So verse 2 says, Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. He was up for this challenge. He was up for it. But in the story, the scene changes. Because remember, Elijah is down in Zarephath with the widow, enjoying her hospitality. Ahab's up in Samaria. And so the scene in 1 Kings 18 switches to Samaria where it says Ahab summons his palace administrator. That is his chief of staff, his top civil servant. He's clearly a person who occupies a significant responsible position in the administration, in this godless government. And we discover that his name is Obadiah, which is maybe no big deal at first read until you read on. But before we even do that, let let me just remind you, or let me tell you the meaning, if you don't know the meaning of Obadiah's name. Two weeks ago it was, I think, we looked at the meaning of Elijah's name. Can anyone remember what Elijah means? Yeah, my God is Yahweh, or Yahweh is my God. What does Obadiah mean? Obadiah means servant of of Yahweh or worshiper of Yahweh. And so what you've got here is a Christian, if you want to use that term, is a Christian who is working in a hostile environment. Here is a Christian who is doing his job for a dubious employer to the best of his ability as a servant of God. And so in God's word, he's a bit like Joseph, or he's a bit like Daniel, or he's a bit like Nehemiah. Obadiah was a valued and respected employee who must have faced his fair share of challenges working for this corrupt regime, an organization, and company, so to speak. But you know something? This is where God has him. This is where God has him. This is where Obadiah works. And so already I want to to suggest that we, we should make connections with this guy in Scripture. Because for many of you, many of you rub shoulders with unbelievers on a daily basis in the primary place that many of you find yourselves in, which is your workplace. And God uses us in our workplaces and places us in our workplaces. God places believers in key positions, even in pagan society, to accomplish his purposes. And we should be praying for those kind of people. We should be praying for each other. We should be those kind of people. And so no matter where you work or who you work for, do it as unto the Lord. Do it to the best of your ability. Do your job well, even if there are aspects of it, even if there are people beside you who stretch and challenge you to the limits. Maintain your integrity, even if there are those around you or systems around you that have no integrity. Obadiah found himself as a servant of the Lord who worshiped the Lord from his youth in a workplace that was godless. But he still did his job, and he did it well. And so he was referred to and he was called upon, even by the most wicked king that ever lived. Be a good worker. Be a good employee where you are. And then we read on and we discover that Obadiah is, he's not just, his name doesn't just mean servant of the Lord because sometimes names can mean things and yet people don't live up to their names. Obadiah was true to his name. And so we discover in the second part of verse three that he was a devout believer in the Lord, or as the ESV has it, uh, let me get it, there it is, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Now, to fear the Lord greatly, I mean, we've looked at this before, but to fear, this is not to be scared of God. This is to have an attitude of heart, mind, and will that leads you to serve God and obey God. That's what it means to fear Him to have an attitude of heart, mind, and will to serve God and obey God. And note, Obadiah did that greatly, all in, 100%. He did it sincerely. He's a devout believer who kept his faith in a hostile environment. And then the narrator tells us another fascinating piece of information about the courage of his faith he didn't just keep his head down and get on with his job, which would have been commendable and is admirable. And many of us do that and should do that. But here was an employee who was also prepared to take some risks, to step out of his comfort zone, to demonstrate his love for God and love for the word of God. Because what we discover in this text is that there were prophets in Israel at this time, in this dark and traumatic time, there were prophets. How many of them? Who they were? No idea. Nobody does but there clearly were a number of them, like over a hundred of them. And Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, this power-hungry murderess who would stop at nothing to get what she wanted. She wanted to eliminate all prophets of God. She wanted to destroy them. She wanted to wipe them from the face of the land. But in the second half of verse four, we read that Obadiah took a hundred of them and he hid them in two caves and two lots of fifties and he fed them, and he watered them. Obadiah didn't just take a 100 prophets. Obadiah took his life in his hands. I mean, you can only imagine what would have happened to Obadiah if he had been found out. And so he's brave. And his faith and his faithfulness, it pushed him. It propelled him beyond himself to help others, even at great personal risk and potential cost. Obadiah is someone, I believe, who deserves more profile. So we go back to the text, having summoned Obadiah, this devout, God-fearing man who's working in this godless government, having summoned him, Ahab gives him his instructions. And what's his instructions? He's to go look for grass in order to save the horses. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? Obadiah is saving profits. Ahab is more intent on saving livestock, which is not an animal rights issue, by the way, before anybody gets upset. It's just an interesting observation. Plus, as one commentator notes, instead of searching for grace, Ahab goes looking for grass. Love that thought. And don't, whatever grass now means in our culture, just don't go there, okay? Instead of searching for grace, Ahab goes looking for grass. So Obadiah and Ahab, it says, head off in different directions. And they go off in search of greenery, which, which when you think about it, three years into a drought, it's a bit, bit of a futile search, is it not? Well, off they go, and it says that Obadiah, and, and Like, this is is brilliant. He bumps into Elijah. Now, I wonder why Ahab didn't go in that direction and bump into Elijah. But anyway, Obadiah went in a certain direction. He's the one bumped into Elijah. And what does he do when he bumps into Elijah? He hits the ground. It's, It's an attitude of humble submission. It's another one of those interesting characteristics of Obadiah. He's a humble man, clearly. And so Elijah now gives Obadiah a new instruction. He says, listen, call off your search for grass. What I want you to do is I want you to go to the king and tell him that you've found me. And what does that Obadiah do? He panics. Absolutely panics. And if you look at verses nine to 14, it, it, it's just one big, and some people say it's just one big rant. And he sees a real problem with Elias, Elijah's suggestion. And the bottom line is, Obadiah is convinced that if he goes to Ahab and says, Ahab, guess what? I didn't find grass, but you know who I have found? I found Elijah. Obadiah is convinced that if he goes and tells the king that, he's going to get killed. You see, Obadiah knows how much the king detests Elijah. He's the one who three years ago announced the drought and has never come back to unannounce it. He's the one that three years ago walked into the king's presence and said, there's gonna be no rain and there's gonna be no dew in the land until I come back and speak. And then he went missing for three years. And that's why there's been this major manhunt. And three times Obadiah refers to the fact in verses nine to 14, three times he says, Ahab will kill me. And so the bottom line is, Obadiah is afraid. Now, I I don't believe for a moment he's afraid of dying for what he believes. I mean, he is the guy who has had a hundred prophets and fed and watered them. So he's not afraid to die for what he believes. I just think that Obadiah, having heard Elijah's suggestion, he thinks, do you know something, Elijah? I know my boss better than you do. I, I know what he's really like. And it would be madness for me to go and tell him that I have found you. You see, Obadiah doesn't mind dying for what he believes, but he doesn't want to be killed for no reason at all. And so you could argue, and I would want to argue, and I know many people do argue, Obadiah at this moment in time, he's just being wise. Because going to tell the king the information that Elijah wanted him to tell the king would effectively have signed his own death warrant. He knew exactly what would happen. And therefore, he wanted to avoid the inevitable. And who can blame him? Because sometimes in the words of another prophet, in the words of Jesus, we need to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves when we find ourselves in threatening situations. I just think Obadiah was being wise. He was smart. And then something changes his mind. Elijah says something that radically alters Obadiah's thinking. And here's what he says. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. You see, it is all in a name. It is all in a name. This name for God The Lord of hosts appears some 261 times in the Old Testament. In some of your versions of God's Word, it will not say the Lord of hosts. It will just say the Lord Almighty. And what it means or what it refers to is all the power that the Lord has at his disposal. Hosts is a reference to the armies of heaven. And therefore, Elijah is making the point that he stands before, that he serves the God of angel armies. And this changes everything. If you were out last Sunday night whenever the BMS Action Team led the service, I think it was they who asked us to close with a particular song. Alison Work was leading us, and maybe Alison had an input into choosing the song as well. It was a song that I know was new to many people. It was a song written by Chris Tomlin, and it's called, or else the subtitle of it is called God of Angel Armies here are some of the lyrics. I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always by my side. The one who reigns forever, he is a friend of mine. The God of angel armies is always by my side. My strength is in your name, for you alone can save. You will deliver me. Yours is the victory. And do you know something? See at this moment in time in First Kings 18, Elijah might as well have been singing that. That's what he was effectively communicating to Obadiah, the God of angel armies, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of of mighty, that is the one I stand before. And yet Ahab may be frightening, he may be the wickedest king who has ever lived, but in light of the Lord of hosts, there's just no competition. So do you know something? This very day, I'm going to see the king. Well, that was enough for faithful Obadiah. His focus shifted, his eyes were opened, his understanding of the powerful God that he served it increased. And therefore we read in the very next verse, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, his fear is replaced by a bold confidence. And why? Because his vision of God, his awareness of the bigness, the greatness, the power of God has intensified. He and Elijah are servants of the Lord Almighty. They're servants of the Lord of hosts. They're servants of the God of angel armies. And if we are here today and we need a bigger vision of God, If we have lost sight of the amazing power of God, then please, this morning, let's allow Elijah and Obadiah's vision of God to refresh our worship. And so at this point, verse 16, Obadiah goes. He goes to tell Ahab, and we never hear of him again. Exit Obadiah. My newest unsung hero in Scripture. So, who was he? What are you going to take away from this morning about him? He's a true servant, as his name implies. But not just a name only, he's a devout believer. He fears God, he serves God, he obeys God. And he doesn't just serve and fear and obey God a little. He does it greatly. He's all in. He's sold out for God. He's a good employee in a godless workplace. He's effective on his front line. He's a risk taker who was prepared to put his life in the lane in order to save others. He's a humble man. He's a wise man who wasn't afraid to say he was afraid. And he's a man who, when reminded of the bigness of the God that he served, the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, what did he do? He chose obedience. And I really hope we can learn something from this relatively unknown Bible character, that if his name meant nothing to you 30 minutes ago, that maybe as we re-engage with his story and the stories of others in First Kings, We'll allow God's word, not my words, but will allow God's word to speak volumes into our lives and into our worship and into our service of God.